Rainbow Valley is a monthly podcast where your host Scott takes a look at key events and personalities that shaped one of the most influential, vibrant, tumultuous and swinging decades in history. Join us as we celebrate the 1960s with the stories surrounding the music and news events of the decade that shook the world. In London, in the 1880s, the city was gripped by fear. A killer was prowling the cobbled, fog-heavy streets of Whitechapel, murdering prostitutes in a chilling reign of terror. Fast forward 70 years and a new killer was on the loose, this time not in the impoverished Victorian East End, but towards the West. Again, his victims of choice would be prostitutes. Believed to have claimed anything up to possibly seven lives or even more, his identity, again like the infamous Jack, was never discovered. Or was it? The newspapers dubbed him the Nude Killer or Jack the Stripper, and his crimes are now pretty much forgotten. At the time, his crimes led to one of the largest manhunts in British history, with some surprising and famous suspects along the way. There would be links to high-ranking officials, world-famous sportsmen and the Profumo affair. Ladies and gentlemen, Rainbow Valley is proud to present the story of the Hammersmith nude murders. I'm a poet, I'm a prophet, I'm the resurrector, I'm the savior of the boxing world. If it wasn't for me, the game would be dead. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. It is now. It's cool. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for man. There were possibly at least seven murders. The first murder, or certainly what is believed to be the first murder, occurred in 1959, five years before the others. And despite the five-year gap, police believed that the victim encountered the same killer. Her name was Elizabeth Fig, and her story is typical of that of the other six victims. Duke's Meadow lies on the north side of the Thames at Chiswick. Today, it is best known for its nearby sports facilities, and is a dense stretch of meadowland with picturesque views across the river. 
Back in 1959, it was also very secluded. Its seclusion meant that it was popular with courting couples. Courting couples and prostitutes. Prostitutes who needed a secluded spot for their curb-crawling clientele. It was the early hours of June the 17th, 1959, when three police officers in a patrol car headed towards the part of the Thames that sat between Barnes Bridge and Chiswick Bridge. They had patrolled earlier that morning with nothing to report and now at 4.30, something definitely was amiss. The officers got out of the car after spotting what appeared to be a pair of legs protruding from behind a willow tree. On closer inspection, the legs belonged to not what they initially thought may have been a drunk or a tramp, but a young woman. Her face was frozen with her eyes and mouth still wide open, stone cold dead, no makeup, no jewellery, no shoes. There were scratches on her throat, and her white and blue striped dress was undone and ripped with no sign of a handbag or other belongings nearby. Who was she? Further information would depend on the findings that the autopsy held later that morning. In London, in 1959, there were three senior pathologists who investigated any suspicious death in the capital. Possibly the most famous of these three was Dr Donald Tear. Tear was the pathologist at the heart of the investigation into the murders at Ten Rillington Place by John Christie, and would later perform the autopsies of Jimi Hendrix and Bruce Lee. Dr Tear arrived at the scene around 7.30 that morning, and estimated the time of death to be sometime between midnight and 2am. Only three photographs were taken of the body at the scene, and it soon became apparent that there was some confusion as to whether the body had actually been moved. The officer in the patrol car stated that the body was found lying beneath the willow tree on the grass. Another report from Detective Constable Arthur Phillips would however state that when he arrived on the scene, the body was sitting leaning against the tree, facing the pub on the opposite side of the river. Post-mortem carried out that morning by Dr. Tier revealed the following information. 5 foot 5 inches tall, weighing 8.5 stone. Age, approximately 25, slim build with dark brown hair. Her fingerprints were not on police records, and as well as the scratches to her neck, there were abrasions to her legs. Identifying features included a small circle-shaped scar below each of her knees, and a further fainter scar on the right knee itself. Dr. Tier would note that she had recently had sexual intercourse and that there was blood on her anus that may have been caused by a fingernail. One other detail noted by the pathologist that morning was that she had discoloured teeth. Two on the right side upper jaw missing and one on the left upper jaw had been recently extracted. A detail that will reappear in several of the future victims. In order to help with the identification process a further photo was taken this time in the morgue, with pieces of matchstick having to be deployed in order to prise her eyelids back open. The photo appeared in the following day's newspapers appealing for help in identifying the body, and two days later, the body at last had a name having been identified by her mother, Elsie King. She was Elizabeth Fig, 21 years old, and the police's initial suspicions that she was a prostitute were soon confirmed. Initial investigations by the police attempted to discover her movements that evening prior to her death, but there was little doubt that the murder was indeed a puzzling one. 
One thing the police were sure of though, that she was definitely driven to Duke's Meadow, but there was no way of knowing if she was dead on arrival. At the inquest at Ealing Coroner's Court two months after the discovery of the body, it was suggested that possibly Elizabeth had kicked off her shoes, removed her clothes herself and left her garments and handbag in the back of the car. Here they remained after her body had been taken to where it was eventually found. Her missing underwear implied that she'd been partially redressed with her dress being ripped at some point during the process. One thing was sure, there was no apparent motive and no suspects. Elizabeth Figg was buried in what was known as a common grave after it became apparent there would be no financial support or family interest. And that was it. The inquiry went cold and there would be no further serious interest in the case for a further five years. For then, West London was clenched in the tight grip of a one-man killing spree and detectives would begin to see the similarities between Elizabeth's death and the later murders were such that she could have been considered the first victim of the nude killer. Murder number two occurred smack bang at the height of one of the busiest and certainly one of the most newsworthy years of the swinging decade. 1963 would witness the death of the Pope, the assassination of JFK, the Profumo scandal and the great drain robbery. Tucked amongst these headlines would be a death. A death that may possibly be attributed to the Hammersmith nude killer. Eventually, detectives would number the victims at six, seven possibly if Elizabeth Figg was included. But there was another murder that took place in late 1963, and even though it can be linked somewhat tenuously, it could possibly be considered amongst the others. The cause of death would be difficult to ascertain, and police would find it impossible to determine whether she was a victim of the Ripper or even that of a backstreet abortionist. The discovery of the body of Gwyneth Rees, aged 22, is a grisly tale, and remarkable that her body was ever identified at all. November the 8th, 1963, the place, a rubbish dump used by Richmond Council not ten minutes away from where Elizabeth Figg had been found in 1959. A young digger driver, 23-year-old Patrick Deneen, was driving across the dump when he drove over what he at first thought was a dead animal. The smell was horrendous, and as the scoop of his digger lifted it up, he noticed a pair of legs hanging out of the shovel. Obviously not an animal, as one of them was wearing a stocking. Police were called, and the area searched inch by inch, as well as digging below the surface of the rotten waste, rubbish and clinker. The body was buried about two feet below the surface, and it was apparent that it had been badly beaten up, decomposed and naked, apart from the nylon stocking rolled around one ankle. And perhaps the most disturbing thing about the discovery, if that wasn't gruesome enough, the head was separated from the body, and like Elizabeth Figg, there were several teeth missing. 
The post-mortem investigation was difficult due to the advanced stage of decomposition and putrefication of the torso. But the pathologist, Professor Arthur Mant, declared that as the hyoid bone had been broken at the time of death, or possibly shortly after, it was highly likely that the victim had been strangled. The hyoid being a small semicircular bone in the throat that is nearly always cracked when someone has been throttled. Despite an intensive search of the dump, the only other item retrieved was the other stocking. No other clothing or belongings. So how was the body eventually identified? Remarkably, in spite of the advanced decomposition of the body, there was one vital clue gathered from the remains, a thumbprint. After freezing and x-raying the almost intact thumb, police trawled through fingerprint records and discovered a match. 22-year-old Gwyneth Rees listed in the police records for 13 convictions, one for theft and 12 for soliciting under the name of Tina Smart. So what would lead the police to consider that Gwyneth could possibly have fallen victim to a botched-up backstreet abortionist? Well, Gwyneth was known to have tried to self-abort at least two of her pregnancies. And of course, abortion was not legalised in the UK until 1967. She was also associated with Cornelius Ryan, an associate of the notorious Cray twins. Ryan would often pimp off Gwyneth Reese and would regularly beat her, blacking her eyes and breaking her nose. Ryan would eventually be jailed along with the twins in 1969 as an accessory to the murder of Jack the Hat McVitie. But in the run-up to the time of Gwyneth's murder, she was associated with some very dodgy people and by all accounts was battered, beaten and malnourished, living on cheap cigarettes and purple hearts. Gwyneth Reese would not be included by detectives as one of the Ripper's victims, however. It's true, a lot was known about her wretched life leading up to her mysterious death. And her body being found so close to that of Elizabeth Figg and the next two victims, coupled with the fact that she was found unclothed, meant that it was a very real possibility that she was actually victim number two. Jump forward two months or so to Wednesday, 22nd of January 1964, and another chilling discovery, this time in the freezing cold water of the River Thames itself. The Thames foreshore, just near to the landing stage of the Corinthian Sailing Club at Hammersmith, was the exact location. Here, two brothers, Douglas and George Capon, both in their early 20s, were preparing a rescue dinghy to be used in a race later that afternoon. As they dragged the boat out to its intended position before high tide crept in, there, caught under the landing stage pontoon, partially covered by driftwood and a discarded Christmas tree, was the naked body of a young woman. Naked, except for her nylon stockings caught around her ankles. Police arrived, and on initial examination there were no obvious injuries. Her eyes were red and her abdomen blue, indicating that the body could possibly have been in the water for several days. On closer examination, a further item of clothing was found stuffed in her mouth, a pair of semen-stained knickers. Mm -hmm. 
The autopsy will record that the body was 5 foot 2 inches tall, brown hair, brown eyes. There was a wound about an inch and a half long on the back of her leg which had occurred after death and a scar from an old caesarean operation. There was bruising on her lower jaw, possibly caused by punches before her death. In her stomach, the remains of a fairly large meal, and at best guess, she had been in the water anything between two to seven days. And in common with the previous two bodies, there were several missing teeth. Fingerprints again identified the body, this time as 31-year-old Hannah Telford. Hannah Telford had led a similar life to both Elizabeth Figg and Gwyneth Rees in so much as she was a young woman who had fled from her family, lost contact with her relatives and lived the loneliest of lives in quiet desperation seeking out sex with strangers. There was no indication as yet that a mass killer was on the loose. The story didn't gather too much attention in the local press, after all Acton, Hammersmith and Shepherd's Bush were no strangers to all manner of grisly goings on. The next murder would take place three months later and would bring about one of the more stranger elements of the case, that of a confession. The body of Irene Lockwood was found about two miles downstream from where Elizabeth Figg had been found discovered at Duke's Meadow. Again, discovered washed up on the shore as the tide went out, she was also only a mere 300 yards upstream of where Hannah Telford had been found in the river. The similarities between the killings were again all too evident. A prostitute, unclothed, with missing teeth. There was a nasty gaping wound across her torso caused by the blade of a passing boat, and the post-mortem would reveal that she was 14 to 18 weeks pregnant. The autopsy concluded that Irene was unconscious when she went into the water and had been there no longer than 48 hours. Drowning was given as cause of death, but it was highly unlikely that her clothes had been washed away by the current. Detective Superintendent Frank Davis took charge of the case, a well-respected officer with flying squad experience, and he immediately believed that she had definitely been murdered. Her identity was eventually discovered from her tattoos and fingerprints. The remarkable confession occurred about two weeks after the discovery of Irene's body. Kenneth Archibald, 54 years old, overweight and quite deaf, stumbled into Notting Hill Police Station. He'd had a few to drink, walked up to the officer on duty behind the desk and declared that he wished to confess to pushing Irene into the river a fortnight before. Earlier that same day, he'd already shown up at the police station to report a break-in at the local tennis club. Archibald was caretaker at the club, lived in the flat above the premises, and made a lucrative living running an illegal after-hours drinking den there. A den that was frequented by boozers, gamblers, punters and prostitutes, including Irene Lockwood. 
It was an eventful day for Archibald. He turned up at the police station in the morning to report the break-in. Following this, he appeared in court charged with the theft of a hearing aid and then returned to the police station after drowning his sorrows at the local to confess to the murder. The story that unfolded proved to be the confession of a complete fantasist and a waste of valuable police time. For some bizarre reason, Archibald would state that he had gone down to the river with Irene for a bit of business. He said that he had choked her until she fell unconscious, undressed her, rolled her lifeless body into the river and burned the clothes the following day. During the interrogation, he denied killing Hannah Telford, which proved frustrating to the police as they believed that these two murders at least were connected. Archibald was charged on the 30th of April, and by the time he appeared at the Old Bailey in June, he had changed his story and pleaded not guilty. He revealed in court that he had made up the confession as he was depressed. He had let his imagination run riot. It took the jury less than an hour to accept this and set him free. In the meantime, back in May, the coroner would return a verdict of drowning as cause of death as, quite frankly, there was little other evidence to go on. There was, however, one aspect to this particular victim that was unique compared to the others. There was no evidence of underwear marks after her death, indicating that she was possibly the only woman that the killer did not have to undress. This killing also marked the end of the phase of murders that took place on or near the river. From now on, all the remaining victims will be found away from the Thames in different parts of West London. Irene Lockwood, like most of the other victims, was buried in a pauper's grave, and with Archibald having been cleared by the court following his baffling and distracting confession, police efforts to track the killer now continued in earnest. For in spite of Archibald's confession, police always believed that the killings of Gwyneth Reese, Hannah Telford and Irene Lockwood were linked. Over 200 known prostitutes were interviewed, along with statements from at least 100 men who knew the victims. Scotland Yard believed that there was a pattern to the murders that could point to a vice ring. But as the murders continued, each one left a whole host of unanswered questions. And the questioning and the investigation would continue even more fervently upon the discovery of the next victim. On the 24th of April 1964, the body of Helen Bartholomew was found in an alleyway behind Boston Manor Road in Brentford. She would be the third murdered woman to be found since February, and the second that month. There were now rumblings in the press, but nothing major. Panic slowly began to creep in amongst the working girls, but on the whole, the general feeling was that the killer only inhabited the world of vice, and in particular that of the streetwalker. Scotland Yard now certainly began to sit up and take notice. At the scene of the latest crime, a rain-soaked alleyway between Swinkham Avenue and the ride, the Yard's finest descended. The head of Scotland Yard's CID himself was there, Commander George Hatherhill, along with Deputy Commander Ernest Millen. 
there was Chief Superintendent Jack Mannings, who had worked on the Gwyneth Rees case, now working alongside Detective Superintendent Maurice Osborne, who would take the lead in this current murder. Head and shoulders above all these very important policemen was Detective Superintendent Bill Baldock, a popular and well-respected officer who had built a name for himself both in the military police and special branch. A highly influential man who would be heavily involved in the Ripper investigation right through to the end. The body of Helen Bartholomew was discovered by local resident Clark May just after 7 o'clock in the morning on April 24th, 1964. Walking out of his back gate onto the service road that spring morning, he made the gruesome discovery by a pile of rubbish. She'd been dead for anything between 20 hours and two or three days. The blood and fluid that pooled in the lower parts of her body indicated that she'd been laid on her back after death. Faint markings on her skin would reveal to the pathologist that she had had her underwear removed after death. He would also conclude that she had been on her back for approximately eight hours. Cause of death, asphyxia, due to some form of pressure on her neck. As with the other victims, there were scratches and abrasions around the neck area, indicating she'd possibly struggled or tried to relieve the pressure there. And there was further evidence that Helen had fought against her attacker. A visible swelling on her cheekbone and the bridge of her nose. Four of her teeth were missing, removed after death with a fragment of tooth found lodged in her throat. The autopsy would conclude that this was most likely caused by a blow or upward pressure rather than a horizontal blow to the jaw. But there was no bruising to the mouth or the lips. This will be noted in the autopsy report with the suggestion that it may have been possible that either the teeth were knocked out immediately after death or even removed just before she died while she was unconscious. It could also have been possible that she'd had them legitimately removed by a dentist a very short time before her murder. The question of the missing teeth would never be resolved across all of the murders. In conclusion, from the state of the body it was ascertained that Helen had been punched, strangled and then laid on her back somewhere dirty. Her teeth were extracted and her clothes removed some eight hours later. It was then believed that she was taken in a vehicle to the alleyway. This would lead to two further clues that would remain the focus of the investigation for several weeks. The first came from analysis of the dirt on her body. Here, the forensic team found coal dust and particles of paint. On closer examination, it was found that the coloured paint matter came from a spray gun nozzle with a preponderance of the colour black. This would lead to a vast search of garages that specialised in paint spraying. A further clue came in the form of the first potential sighting of the killer, or at least the vehicle he may have dumped the body from. Local farmer Alfred Harrow would report to the police an incident that occurred in the early hours of the morning that Helen's body was found. At about 10 to 6 that morning, Harrow would inform police that he was driving in the area and had to brake suddenly to swerve to avoid a grey Hillman Husky, or possibly a Hillman Estate type vehicle. The car had torn out of Swinkin Avenue and sped towards the Great West Road. The junction where this incident occurred was a mere 40 yards from where Helen would be found just an hour later. 
This incident with the car was taken as a serious lead, mainly because Mr. Harrow used the same stretch of road at the same time on an almost daily basis, and he was familiar with most of the vehicles that he encountered, and secondly, because it was deemed to be a very reliable witness and an upstanding member of the local community. The press could no longer ignore this now obvious pattern of murders, with headlines such as Yard Ace Hunt Strip Killer and 50 Detectives on the Trail of the Strangler. The National Dailies would highlight not only the scale of the manhunt, but also a theme of widespread fear and panic in the capital. The coroner's hearing into the death of Helen Bartholomew would again reveal the sad life of a young woman who'd left home as a youngster and ended up in the murky, desperate world of prostitution. And yet, with now four, or possibly even five, murders in West London of working girls, the murder teams were still no closer to finding a single credible suspect. Fast forward three months or so to the early hours of the 14th of July 1964, a morning that would provide two close calls for the killer. A killer desperate to dispose of his latest victim. The first of these close calls occurred about two o'clock that particular morning. Two decorators working throughout the night painting a cafe on the Chiswick High Road would witness some very strange behaviour and possibly one of the only sightings of the killer. Watching through the windows of the calf, they saw a grey estate-type vehicle or small van pull up and reverse towards the nearby pedestrian walkway. It immediately attracted their attention as no vehicles would usually be seen there at that time of the morning. And secondly, its lights were off. Watching from the window, the two decorators surveyed a man getting out of the vehicle, who they would later describe as between 25 and 35, about 5 foot 10 inches tall, medium build, clean shaven and wearing a suit. The man got out of the van, slowly walked around it and was looking all around him, giving the impression that he was checking to see if there was no one around. He hadn't noticed the decorators staring at him as he continued to check to see if the coast was clear. Deciding to wind him up a little, one of the decorators shouted out through the open window, Who's that out there? The man spun around, saw the two of them watching him, jumped back into the van and sped away. Although the two decorators could not be more specific as to the make of the vehicle or provide a license plate number, it certainly sounded like the vehicle that Alfred Harrow had nearly collided with on the morning that Helen Bartholomew had been found 12 weeks earlier. Not three hours later, the body of the next victim would be found. Less than five minutes away by car from where the late night decorators were working, just down Acton Lane, residents were woken by the sound of a vehicle reversing. Here, at Berrymead Road, the killer dumped his next victim, obviously scared off by the workman painting in the calf. The body of 30-year-old Mary Fleming was found at 4.45am by chauffeur George Head, out early that morning to drive his daughter off to a school trip. There, lying outside number 48 Berrymead Road, 
was what he at first thought was a tailor's dummy. Mary Fleming was naked, with her arms folded and her legs in a kind of cross fashion. Her head slumped forward onto her chest. George Head had heard the car reversing out the cul-de-sac a few hours earlier, and like other residents that morning thought little of it until now. It would also turn out that the vehicle was possibly seen by a police car on the Acton Lane as it sped away. The policeman, going in the opposite direction, didn't think anything at the time, but if going the other way and actually behind the car as it sped off would probably have given chase. Incredibly, this meant that the killer had two close calls within the space of half an hour, having been spotted twice, once by the decorators and again by the police car. This could possibly account as to why they then followed the longest gap between the 1964 to 1965 murders, about 15 weeks. And so, once again, the killings made front page news the following day, Wednesday the 15th of July 1964. The Daily Mirror's front page headline screamed, Nude Number 5, River Killer Hunted. The police and the papers at this point were including Gwyneth Reese, but not Elizabeth Figg. The papers will recount the latest killing, the body now identified as Mary Fleming, 29 years old and originally from Scotland. Her body, when first discovered, was in a strange position, her head and torso tipped forward over her right knee. Like previous victims, she was covered in dirt, and the post-mortem revealed that prior to being dumped, the body had been kept on its back somewhere for a while. Cause of death, asphyxiation due to strangulation, with abrasions under the chin indicating she probably struggled against whatever had been used to choke her, most likely her own clothing. It certainly appeared that Mary had put up a good fight with a large bruise on her chest, possibly caused by a heavy punch, and as well as a swollen eyelid and numerous small grazes and scratches. As for her teeth, well, Mary in total had 12 missing. Pretty much all of her front teeth, in fact, in the 1960s, it's estimated that nearly 37% of the British public required false teeth and dentures were commonplace. Mary had never had individual dentures fitted, but if she'd been wearing false teeth of any description, they were never found. Mary, like the others, was a prostitute. Investigations would reveal that she'd been with a punter in a red Volkswagen late on Friday the 10th of July, and had probably met a killer shortly after in the early hours of the Saturday. Three days later, her body would be unceremoniously discarded onto that garage forecourt in Berrimead Road. The newspapers would continue with their stories and speculation in earnest, with the killer being described as the most dangerous sex maniac since John Christie, and dubbing him or her as Jack the Stripper. Theories that the murder was a transvestite would be formulated, as the victim's clothing was never found. And by the 19th of July, the most overall coverage in the press would appear in the news of the world, with an article written by journalist Ron Mount, who wrote an open letter to the murderer urging him to give himself up. Perhaps you can't help yourself when in the midst of your obscenities with a cheap-bought woman, the red mist comes down and your hands tighten and tighten and tighten, the story read. Perhaps when you're caught, they will save you from the searing rope because you are ill, sick in your mind. And there is no doubt at all, if you ignore my advice, you will be caught, you cannot win. You're a murderer, a multi-murderer, 
a modern Jack the Ripper who has caused a wave of terror among the street girls of London. It is certain you have the deaths of two women on your hands. You may be responsible for four, and there's even a chance that your grim total of sex-crazed killings could be as high as six, which brings you into line with that other monster, Christy. I have roamed in the early hours through the patch where you and your victims, that sprawling, teeming, vice-ridden jungle from Shaftesbury Avenue down west to Queensway. I've sat in the bars, the clubs and the coffee bars where your victims were well known and where nightly detectives are now mingling with customers. I know the type of women you favour. All your victims have been scrubbers, cheap little tarts pepped up by 50 Purple Heart tablets a day to perform unspeakable perversions with any man who pulls up in a car and has a pound in his pocket. You like small, petite women, don't you? All your victims have been slim-built and between only 5 feet and 5 feet 3 inches tall. Not very strong, were they? Not much of a struggle for you. The one solid piece of forensic evidence was the dust found on the bodies of both Helen Bartholomew and Mary Fleming. It consisted of coke dust, coal and red and black particles of paint and tiny specks of blue paint. Vast amounts of man hours were spent investigating this particular piece of evidence that looking back really led to nowhere. The paint particles had come from a spray nozzle, not a brush, and so intense was the search that 105 extra officers were dragged in by the CID to search garages, warehouses, sheds, lockups, and boatyards. An area six miles square was checked with over 150 possible locations checked and samples taken, but to no avail. Prostitutes, pimps, and punters were all questioned and car registrations taken down by undercover officers watching the curb crawlers around Queensway. And despite all this activity, the police were no closer than they were at the start of the investigation. The jury at Ealing Coroner's Court would pronounce their verdict on the death of Mary Fleming on the 2nd of November 1964. Murder by a person or persons unknown. As mentioned at the beginning of this episode, 1963 would be an eventful year with regard to noteworthy news events. The 25th of November the following year, 1964, would see a link between the next victim and one of the biggest of those news stories, the Profumo Affair. 
Francis Brown, born in Glasgow in 1943, would gain minor celebrity status in 1963, appearing as a witness in the trial of Stephen Ward, the man at the centre of the scandal that would eventually lead to the downfall of the government. She would find herself on the front pages once again the following year when her rotting corpse was found in a car park just off Kensington High Street. It was Wednesday the 25th of November 1964 and her maggot-infested body was found by Assistant Civil Defence Officer Dennis Sutton. Francis Brown had been left naked, covered by a dustbin lid and wood, leaves and rubbish. The condition of her body was so badly decomposed that the post-mortem examination proved to be particularly difficult. Eventually, it would reveal abrasions on the neck that would lead the coroner to conclude death by asphyxia caused by pressure on the throat. It had been three months since the last murder and the killer was now using a far busier area to drop off his victims. Front page headlines would detail new theories and speculations as to the identity of the killer. Was there more of a connection to the Profumo affair? There were certainly links between some of the victims and the Cray twins. There were sightings of grey cars, huskies and zephyrs that needed investigating. Reports of strange men picking up prostitutes, but then wasn't that an everyday occurrence even before the murders? Newspapers theorised that the killer might not be part of some close-knit, perverted, seedy, nocturnal network, but a crazed, lone murderer with no connection to his victims at all. And yet the police's best chance of finding whoever was responsible lay with the paint and dust particles found on the bodies of the last three victims. Find out where that originated from, and it would lead to where the bodies were kept, and hopefully reveal the killer's identity as well. One piece of information was revealed to the police during routine questioning of known prostitutes and it provides an intriguing glance as to who the killer may actually be. At the time it was discussed by the investigating officers and you can't help think what if. The information was provided by Vera Lynch, a friend and co-worker of Francis Brown. She told detectives Francis had told her a story about a punter who had really creeped her out in the October before she disappeared. He was driving a small van, a small grey van with a lot of junk in the back. Francis had described him as having a laughing face. He showed her a black card with gold lettering on it, Metropolitan Police, and said he was a CID officer. The conversation turned to the killings, and Francis, believing him to be what he said, asked him about some of the finer details. He revealed that the killer would pull the victim's coat over their shoulders, thereby locking their arms. He would then tighten whatever clothing they were wearing underneath around their neck and strangle them. Francis, clearly unnerved by the whole thing, opened the door and got out the van. 
but was given a pound for her trouble, although no physical interaction of any kind had taken place. Could it be possible that the Hammersmith nude killer was a police officer? It would explain how he had eluded capture so far. The details he gave were certainly accurate, and he was driving a grey van. It would also mean that if Francis met him again, she'd probably trust him to do some business. After all, he gave her a quid for nothing. And she wouldn't give a second thought to get him back into the van, possibly to her death. And so we come to Bridget Bridie O'Hara, officially the Hammersmith New Killer's final victim, discovered on the 16th of February 1965. Her body was found on the Heron Trading Estate, stuffed between a shed and some chain-link fencing, covered in bracken and grass, and like previous victims, stark naked. The post-mortem would reveal the following information. Five foot one inches tall, weighing nine stone. Her dental plate, along with a few teeth, were missing. Pressure marks from her underwear indicated she had been wearing a bra, stockings and suspenders after death. There were two small abrasions on her neck, but no sexual injuries. She had been dead for four weeks, possibly spending two or three of those in a cold or refrigerated area, and had been in her current position for about a week. And once again, there were traces of the paint and dust particles on her skin, matching those found on Bartholomew, Fleming and Brown. Cause of death, asphyxiation due to pressure on the face and the neck. By February 1965, the crimes had been given a new title, The Nude Murders. Up to this point, the press coverage was restrained, only reporting any new developments. Now, the reporting escalated. Press reports included the lengths that officers were going to hunt down the murderer. Detectives were ordered to go back over ground already covered, interviewing and re-interviewing witnesses, relatives, associates and virtually anybody they could think of. Three superintendents of Scotland Yard's murder squad were assigned to the all-out investigation. And in charge of the whole thing, Chief Superintendent John DeRose, known as Four Day Johnny for the speed at which he closed cases. Rose was one of the big five at the yard, head of C1 department, responsible for overseeing murder inquiries. DeRose's 35-year career led to his involvement in investigating the acid bath murders, the Messina Vice Ring and the Pillbox murder case, all notorious and high-profile crimes. He would also later be involved in the operations against both the Richardson Gang and the Cray Twins. The press held his appointment as a major step forward in the investigation, but in reality this killer was something different. There were no apparent ties to his victims and hardly any clues left behind. With the Hammersmith nude killer always one or more steps ahead of the police, the investigation was under a huge strain. And despite John DeRose's accumulation of one of the biggest investigative forces the capital had ever seen, still Jack the Stripper eluded him. 
He had a 200-strong CID murder force along with another 100 uniformed officers under his command. This, coupled with 300 officers from the newly formed Special Patrol Group, ensured that West London was flooded with policemen and policewomen. 28 officers were given authority to use their own cars to carry out patrols covering over 100 miles a night. By March 1965, a further six CID officers, 58 aides to CID, four female plainclothes officers and eight uniformed officers were added to the ranks, along with a number of dog handlers. Female police officers were employed as decoys dressed as prostitutes working the dodgy curb-crawling hangouts of Queensway, Westbourne Grove and Shepherd's Bush Green. Also in March, a further squad of 17 officers was deployed specifically to search for locations where the most recent four victims had been stored. Every street in Kensington, Paddington, Hammersmith, Fulham, Ealing and Hounslow was targeted. Within each street, garages, rooms, sheds and empty shops had to be searched and dust samples taken. It was a Herculean task. In total, about 650 streets were visited, 120,000 people interviewed, and yet none of the laboratory results tested positive on the dust samples. Needless to say, the scale of this particular site of the investigation proved too much of a drain on resources, and by the September, this part of the operation was halted, with only half of the targeted area having been checked. The vehicle, first witnessed in the Brentford and Chiswick areas in April and July 1964, believed to be a grey husky van, was investigated by another squad of officers. Eleven women officers spent day after day trawling through 600,000 vehicle files at Middlesex County Council and a million more at County Hall. And as if this wasn't difficult enough, each record was filed by a registration number, not make or model of vehicle. This meant in order to find Hillman Huskies or possibly Hillman Estates or even Comma Cobbs, which all matched the description of the vehicle in question, meant going through all 1.6 million records. 783 Hillman Husky cars were examined by officers and the drivers questioned. At last, on the 6th of May 1965, a breakthrough, or was it? Examination of the dust and paint particles on the latest victim, Bridie O'Hara, matched that from the local area in which she had been found, the Heron Trading Estate. Specifically, a vacant premises, Napier's Aero Engines Limited. Forensics even pinpointed the spot to 150 yards from where her body was found. The premises, a factory along with various outbuildings, closed down in August 1963. Between then and May 1964, it was gradually emptied of all equipment and machinery. 
With no security present, it was open to anyone. Courting couples would go there in the evenings, and other workers on the estate would use it as a shortcut to the local calf. Over 6,000 people working on the estate were interviewed, along with 1,000 former staff. During the period of the murders, several buildings on the site had been demolished, meaning that the dust and paint samples needed a serious amount of cross-checking. This, coupled with the amount of footfall across the estate, meant that in reality, despite finding what was the hiding place of the bodies, detectives were unable to link the location to anyone, suspect or otherwise. And of course, detectives would ponder why on earth was Bridie O'Hara left right outside the killer's secret storage place. Was he scared of potentially getting caught again with a body in his van? Or did he know that Bridie O'Hara would be his last victim? And so, with the killings apparently over, who came under serious consideration as the murderer, and why did the police think it was the work of just one man? Well, there were obvious connections in the pattern of the murders. Gwyneth Rees, whose badly decomposed body was found on the Mortlake rubbish tip in 1963, was excluded as a victim. It was highly likely that she died due to a botched abortion, or even at the hands of one of her many violent acquaintances. And in fact, it's not actually clear whether she was actually murdered or not. But going back to 1959 and Elizabeth Figg, whose body was found up against a tree by the river, she could potentially be judged to be the first victim. All the victims were small in stature, all between 5 foot and 5 foot 2. It was possible that all the victims had been asphyxiated, although originally Telford and Lockwood were thought to have drowned, but this was inconclusive. No clothing was ever recovered from the victims apart from Telford, who was still wearing her stockings and had her knickers stuffed down her throat, a tattered coat found wrapped around the propeller of the boat. All the victims were prostitutes, known to work around Notting Hill and Shepherd's Bush, and all originated from outside London. Four of the bodies were known to have been stored on the Heron Trading Estate. The first two were pulled from the Thames and not tested for dust particles, however. All the victims had lost teeth, and no dentures were ever recovered from the crime scenes. All the victims were heavy drinkers, and all had suffered from venereal diseases. There was no evidence of sexual violence in any of the victims. Three, however, showed signs of being punched. Throughout the investigation, a number of suspects would come under serious consideration. There was the builder from Stoke Newington who was with Elizabeth Figg the night she died. A 45-year-old man from Fulham convicted of murdering a prostitute in 1952. 
there was the 52-year-old Brighton news agent who also happened to be a transvestite. Several men across the southeast were picked up and questioned due to their, shall we say, eclectic and unusual habits and demands of the sexual nature when picking up prostitutes. A strong suspect was the 42-year-old Stoker from East Acton. He would brag of his exploits with prostitutes. He owned a Bedford Utilibrake van and had worked in the Napier's factory on the Heron Trading Estate. And despite him being what was described by police as an odd character, there was nothing to pin him to the murders. There was the 36-year-old engineer from Kingston in Surrey, accused of attempted rape in April 1965. He had threatened a woman in his comma van, but again, no evidence could be found against him. There was a Belgian refrigeration engineer, a homemade bomber from Hertfordshire, and a Harley Street dentist. And as mentioned earlier, there was some suspicion amongst officers that the killer may have been a fellow officer. This suspicion would lead to serious consideration following the death of Bridie O'Hara, when a former detective constable whose career had ended in disgrace would be investigated as a considerable potential suspect. At the time of the murders, he was a used car salesman, but during his time as a police officer, he was described as a loner and a bit strange by his colleagues. His career ended in disgrace after he was found guilty of breaking and entering into several premises. Numerous coincidences about his movements and location at the time of the murders proved to be tantalising towards some of the senior officers, and it's believed that certain tip-offs only strengthened the case against him. But as with most leads in this investigation, it ground frustratingly to a dead halt. But perhaps the strangest theory as to the identity of the murderer pointed the finger of suspicion at a very notable public figure, the boxer Freddie Mills. In this day and age, it's commonplace for retired sports stars to become celebrities in the field of entertainment. Freddie Mills was one of the first to achieve such celebrity way back in the 50s and the 60s. Freddie Mills became world heavyweight champion in 1948 and following his retirement as well as running a successful nightclub he would go on to appear in several movies including two carry-on films and present the BBC popular music show 6-5 special. On the 24th of July 1965, six months after the final murder, Mills was found shot to death in his car behind his club on the Charing Cross Road. He was said to have shot himself with a .22 fairground rifle borrowed from a friend who ran a shooting gallery. The coroner's court brought in a verdict of suicide, although he was never accepted by his family. Rumours abounded that he was killed by gangsters in a feud over his club, or that he'd been arrested for indecency in a public toilet. 
These rumours also included the fact that he was the Hammersmith nude killer and took his own life fearing that police officers were closing in on him. Whoever the police suspected, one fact remains the killer was never caught. Some theorised that it was due to the massive scale of the police operation that led to the killing stopping, the killer believing that arrest was imminent. But one thing is clear, despite the vast scale and manpower of the police operation, the Hammersmith nude killer presented a huge challenge to the force. He was quite meticulous, planning his crimes and choosing his victims carefully, selecting a certain type and disposing of any potential evidence such as clothes and even dentures. Everybody was a suspect and as there was nowhere specific to look, everywhere was covered. And who knows, it's always possible that somewhere out there, the killer is actually still alive. Sure, he'll be quite elderly at this point in time, but back in London, at the height of the swinging 60s, he killed six, seven, or possibly more young women, and got away with it. Next time, why don't you join me as I bring you the year that saw the first woman in space and the Profumo scandal. It was the year that Martin Luther King declared to the world that he had a dream and witnessed the death of a pope and the assassination of a president. With music from The Shadows, Frank Ifield and Jerry and the Pacemakers, join me as I bring you the hits and headlines from 1963. Thanks for listening. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at RV underscore podcast. Join our Facebook group at Facebook forward slash Rainbow Valley Podcast or take a look at the website rainbowvalley.libsyn.org. Send us your thoughts and feedback to rainbowvalleypod at gmail.com. This has been a Stinking Pause production. Mm-hmm.